gonna, we're going to turn to Genesis 29. I was so tempted, though, to just uh, read our text today out of the Jesus Storybook Bible by uh, Sally Martin Lloyd-Jones. And if you have this today, I'd go home and read it because the story we're going to look at is probably my favorite story um, in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's just awesome. In fact, Sally uh, Lloyd-Jones entitles it, The Girl No One Wanted. <laughs> and I know some of you read this to your children. You know exactly what story this is. Uh, but let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word, Genesis 29. Then Jacob continued on his journey. Literally in the Hebrew it says, and then Jacob picked up his feet and, and, and took a step. You know, sometimes that's what life is, right? All we can do is just pick our feet up and, and, and take the next step. And he came to the land of the eastern peoples, and there he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. And then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, I mean, this is just such a shot in the dark. Do you happen to know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yeah, we know him, they answered. And then Jacob asked him, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, get out of here. <laughs> this is like, here's five bucks, scat, scat. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep, take them back to the pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we'll water the sheep. So these guys are all sitting around, okay? They're kind of waiting for another shepherd to arrive because it takes several shepherds to move this rock so that they can water the sheep. Well, that, while, he, while he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, and she was a shepherdess. And when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he looked at that rock, and he rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well, and he watered his uncle's sheep. And then Jacob kissed Rachel, and he began to weep aloud. And he had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. And so she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him, kissed him, brought him into his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. And then Laban said to him, you are flesh you are my own flesh and blood. Well, after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Well, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. And he said, I'll work for her. I'll work seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. 
So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days because he's in love. And then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I will lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place, gave a feast. When evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I've served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why did you deceive me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Oof. Did you just hear what he said? In fact, it's not even the older one. He says, um, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. The thing that Jacob is guilty of gets turned on him. And Laban replied, okay, so finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. Of course he did so. He's in love. He finished the week with Leah. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah and his servant to his daughter Rachel as her servant. And Jacob lay with Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. This is God's word. You can be seated. <laughs> Bible's pretty raw and real, isn't it? And I just want to, first of all, just by way of review, get us caught up in the story. Starting in Genesis 12, God has set in motion his whole plan to restore all creation. God is going to make everything right, and the way God is going to work out this plan to make everything right, all things new, he's going to do this through a family. This family is going to become a people. This people will become a nation. They're going to become a royal nation of kings and queens, a nation of priests, because through them, God is going to show himself and reveal himself to the world. And also, it's going to be through this family that will be impregnated with the seed that's going to give birth to Messiah, this rescuer, this king of all kings, this lord of all lords, who's going to come and make everything right. So God's doing all of this through this family And we are just two generations into this family. And I don't know about you, but all I see here is a family that is so broken and so dysfunctional. I mean, it goes back to Isaac having two sons, Jacob and Esau. For some reason, this this father favors the older son Esau. He loves Esau. He finds great joy in Esau. And Jacob, he hardly notices him. And see, we see the devastating effects that this has on these boys because Jacob now becomes manipulative and deceiving, trying every way he can to get his dad's blessing. It's kind of like, Dad, would you notice me? Would you love me? And he becomes a trickster. Then finally, he tricks his dad into getting the blessing. That results in Esau burning with anger to the point he wants to kill him. So then Jacob has to run. He leaves everything. 
He is completely empty-handed. His life is in shambles. His life is over. It's hopeless. But if you remember, on the first night of his journey, when he puts his head down on that rock, the Bible says he comes to Hamakom, the place, Bethel, house of God, and Aveyatsta occurs. This encounter, this collision between Jacob and the living God. And there he gets this incredible vision of God. And the, the, the exclamation point to this experience that he has with God is this. God looks at him and says, even though you're leaving this place, you're leaving this land, I'm going to go with you, Jacob. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to protect you. Now we're to our story today. Now, I don't know if you've noticed yet this trend in the Bible with wells. I mean, have you ever noticed what happens a lot at wells in the Bible? Abraham's servant found Isaac's wife at a well. Jacob now is about to find his wife at a well. Later, Moses will find his wife at a well. Hey, this is where the ladies were, okay? This was the hangout place. And also, you have to understand, the the well is this picture of of life and fertility, of love and of romance, of of maim chayim, of, of living water. Now plug that thing into John 4, when Jesus meets a woman at a well. Now, I think it's fair to say that Jacob is smitten with love. I mean, his heart, the moment he sees Rachel, it's, it's smitten. It, it really is, whether you believe in this or not, love at first sight. And it's not some fickle thing because you read the whole story of Jacob and you see to the very end, Jacob loves Rachel. In fact, I love this in verse 10, and I kind of highlighted it when I read it. I mean, Jacob, all of a sudden, you talk about playing the man. I mean, he comes up to this rock that takes several men to move, and Jacob is just like, move out, guys. I'll take care of this myself. You know, and, and, and what I find interesting after this is verse 11. He just weeps. This grown man weeps like a baby. Why? What's going on? Because, see, in my opinion, I mean, even though, sure, Jacob, I mean, that's pretty impressive. I mean, this emotion just seems way over the top. But remember how broken and empty this guy's life is. And Jacob, up until this point in his life, is a weak man with weak faith. I mean, even at Bethel, at Hamakom, when he encounters the God, he has this amazing experience with God, and God promises, Jacob, I'm going to be with you. Even there, Jacob says back to God, God, I'll trust you if, if you prove yourself to me. You have to prove yourself to me, God. That's weak faith. But it's still faith. 
And here God is meeting Jacob and proving himself to Jacob. Jacob, my hand is on you. And for the first time, I think Jacob is experiencing the, the, the power of God in his life. The, the, the Holy Spirit being, being hovering around him. And he weeps. He's filled with emotion. Now, the, now the story kind of starts to, to pulsate with some excitement because it moves to this big family reunion. There's this running, there's embracing, there's kissing. They play Dutch bingo for a while. Yeah, you Dutchies, you know exactly what that is. If you don't know, it's like, well, do you know so-and-so? Who knows so-and-so? Who knows so-and-so? I mean, it's like, Dad, be quiet. <laughs> Does that all the time. Anyway, but forget that. I think for the first time in Jacob's life, everything is finally looking up. He's in love. You know what would be kind of nice is if we could just have this thing end with some fairy tale ending. I mean, boy meets girl, boy marries girl, and they lived happily ever after the end. It's not going there. Because it never goes there. And I'll tell you why it doesn't go there. It's because Jacob is a sinner. And Jacob is surrounded by sinners. And good circumstances don't change sinful hearts or make for fairy tale endings. And see, like all of us, Jacob is not just a victim of sin, but he's a perpetrator of sin. And for his life to really change, he must change. His heart must change, his character must change. Because this to me is the lie about circumstances. So many of us just think that our circumstances are what make or break us. We think if we could just win the lottery or get the girl or get the job or win the championship that everything is going to be okay. It's not. Until this is okay. Until my Heart is okay, and my character is okay. And see, Jacob, even though his circumstances have changed, he still has a deceitful heart. He still has a wounded heart. He still has an ache in his heart. He has a hole in his heart the size of a Grand Canyon. And, and good circumstances will never fill the ache. They're never going to fill that gaping hole. All they're going to do is reveal the depths of the ache, the depths of the wound, and the depths of his sin in dealing with the wound. And it's all right here in our story. I mean, it's just as clear as day. It's coming right at us. At us. Because here's what happens. All right, Laban sees that he has a good thing in Jacob. Here's a capable guy who can help me with my family business. So he comes to Jacob and he says, all right, Jacob, I want you to work for me. He says, how can I pay you? Well, verse 16 tells us that Laban has two daughters. The older is Leah, the younger is Rachel. Then the next verse, verse 17, describes these two daughters. It says about Leah that she has weak eyes. 
I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean she just can't see well? Well, no, because when you compare within what it says about Rachel, it's not saying that she is weak with the eye, but she is weak to the eye. She's homely. She's unattractive. Maybe even ugly. And, and weak here might mean that she might have become fragile and sensitive due to her appearance. Added to this, Leah has a younger sister, Rachel, who's drop-dead beautiful. Now, these two sisters had to grow up with each other. From appearances, one is, is, is drop-dead gorgeous, the other is, is just plain weak. And see, now you feel another dimension of, of pain and woundedness that's in this story. Then Jacob shows up and only rubs salt in this wound and says, I'll take the beautiful one. I want Rachel. And this is probably something Leah has heard her whole life. Do you feel this pain? I do. I think one of the most uh, painful realities of, of being a high school pastor for nine years and even really being married to a woman for, don't ask me how long. <laughs> it's 19 years, okay? Just calm down. Livy's not here today, so no one has to go run into live and say, Rod forgot how long you were married. <laughs> what this has taught me, every woman wants to feel desirable, that someone wants me, that someone desires me, that someone looks at me and thinks I'm lovely and beautiful. And see, ladies, I don't, I, I don't care if you are single or you're married, if you're young or you're old, I'm confident that every woman in this room right now craves, craves, this kind of affection. And see, as much as I would like to read a text like this and say, thank goodness, this isn't our world anymore. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this is our world. Because if you're telling me that a woman's appearance doesn't affect the course of her life, I don't know what planet you're living on. This is our world. And this isn't just for women. This is for men. And I'll tell you, as, as a result of, of all of this, as a result of this reality, I'm also pretty confident today that more women right now feel like Leah than they do like Rachel. I mean, my wife Libby, when she used to work with high school girls and junior high girls, one of the things that she used to do with them is, 
is, is she would have them in the room and she'd have them, all right, I want you to all close your eyes. And she'd ask this one simple question. How many of you right now think you're beautiful? Close your eyes if you think you're beautiful. Raise your hand. One out of ten, one out of ten would raise their hands. Now Laban has a problem now. Just because of the kind of man he is. Because what Laban's thinking is this, I'm never going to marry Leah. I mean, how do I unload Leah? And, and, and his mind is already going to the place where, how can I manipulate this to make this happen? So when Jacob says, I'm going to work for, for seven years for Rachel, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, but this is an outrageous bride price. I mean, a bride price in those days would be a couple months. And J- Jacob's like, I'll, pay, I'll work seven years for her. And see, what Jacob just did is he played his card. He showed his weakness. He told Laban, I'm willing to do anything to get Rachel. Now, what he doesn't know is that he has just met his match in Laban, except for the fact that Laban is 25 years older and 25 years better at this. And so Jacob, who's so smitten with love, can't even see this about Laban. In fact, look at verse 19. When Jacob puts the proposal on the table, Laban never says yes, does he? So when seven years are completed, Jacob comes to Laban, says, all right, I've worked for Rachel. Give me my wife. Now it's time to throw the feast have the, have, have the ceremony. In those days, it would be several days. And then it would come to this place where they make their wedding vows. Now, for us, the place that we make our, our, our covenant or, or the wedding vows, it's, it's done in a church before many witnesses at an altar. But in Bible times, the way the vows were made, the way the covenant was made is in the love changer, chamber through consummation. Here's Jacob. Probably had way too much to drink. (laughs) He's entering the bridal chamber with his bride, who would be all veiled. And I can just imagine what this guy's thinking. Finally, after all these years, finally, something good. I finally have something that makes me feel okay that life is okay, that life is meaningful. And then you read verse 25. But when morning came, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob is duped. The deceiver is deceived. The manipulator is manipulated. The trickster is tricked. And all lovesick Jacob can do is go back to Laban and say, Laban, all right, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to get Rachel? Laban says, give me seven more years, and after this week, she's yours. So Jacob finally gets the girl. But I want us to see the situation. Because you talk about a hell on earth. 
It's hard enough to be married to one woman, let alone two. <laughs> Again, I'm kidding, but I'm not. <laughs> and then you add to the fact that they're both sisters. But especially for Leah, I mean, what a hellish situation. For the remainder of her life, Leah will live in this prison where not only is she unloved, unwanted, but every single day she has to watch her husband giving to her sister the very thing her heart longs for. And if you want to hear her pain, listen to these verses. Because you read them on the surface and you think, oh, here's just another genealogy. But look at verses 32 through 34. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord was, was sitting... Wait, I've turned one too many pages there. <laughs> that didn't sound right. Because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too, so she named him Shimon. And again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne to him three sons. So she named him Levi. You hear that pain? Reuben means I'm seen. Shimon means I'm heard. Levi means I'm attached. With the birth of each child, she's just hoping, now finally my husband will notice me. Finally he will hear me. Now finally my husband will love me. And it never happens. But by the time she comes to her fourth child, she says, this time, I will praise the Lord. And she names him Yahudah, which means, God, you are my praise. And that's the gospel. Right there. And what does this text teach us? Number one, we need to see the power of sin. Because sin is not just a behavior. Sin is not just something that's done in a moment in time and then kind of just stays in that moment. Because sin, it weaves in us and it weaves through us, and it weaves out of us into the world. I mean, imagine a pond, and then imagine not just a pebble, but imagine a big boulder just being dropped into the pond. What happens? Kaboom! Wave, wave, ripple. That's what sin is. And see, we can go back to Isaac's sin, Jacob's father. I mean, the shockwaves of his sin are still being felt. 
His sin of favoritism left long-term wounds. It sends shockwaves through his whole family. It turns these two brothers into enemies. It makes Esau morally and spiritually irresponsible. It makes Jacob into a deceiver. And here's Jacob, so far removed from Isaac's sin, but he's still scarred. There's still that deep ache. There's still this massive father wound. He's still trying to fill the hole in his heart. And if you want to know why Jacob is obsessed with Rachel, it's because he comes to her empty and wounded with ache in his heart. And he's just kind of thinking to himself, but if I get Rachel, everything will be okay. My life will be okay. I will be okay. And see, all this does is it just causes Jacob to be the same dirty, rotten sinner his father was because now Jacob does the same thing to Leah that his father did to him. And now Leah has to suffer everything that Jacob had to suffer. This this pain of being unwanted, of playing second fiddle, of going unnoticed. And this, my friends, is the cycle of sin and why sin is passed from generation to generation to generation. And see, when sin goes unchecked or when we just kind of sweep sin under the rug or just say sin was just that thing, that moment in time that I did that no longer has any effect on my life, or the people around me's lives. I'm telling you, we don't get it. And you guys wonder, why, why, why do you preach on sin all the time? Because the Bible does. This is our problem. And circumstances, good or bad, aren't going to change this. In fact, we're going to see later, if we keep studying Genesis, now how, how Jacob's sin going all the way back to his father Isaac, is now going to be passed into the grandchildren, into Jacob's children. Joseph's going to be the favorite child. He's going to become cocky. He's going to become conceited as a result of that, causing all his brothers around him to hate him to the point they want to kill him. This is the power of sin. And I would say... As a husband, as a father, and as a pastor, there's nothing worse than seeing my sin in my bride because of me or in my children or even in my church, our church. It's hard. Secondly, the story teaches this. It teaches us the nature of sin or or, or what sin is in its essence because sin is so much deeper than just a behavior. We need to learn to see the sin underneath the behavior, the sin underneath the sin. It's that that deeper sin that's underneath our behavior, whether the behavior is good or bad. Okay, so now what's the nature of Jacob's sin? Is it, is it that he falls in love with Rachel? No. Is it that he marries Rachel? No. His sin is that he has this inordinate obsession with Rachel. And I'm going to tell you something. This isn't 
love, even though our culture says this is what love is, this isn't biblical love. And I'll show you in the text where, where you get the, the, the flavor of this obsession. Look at verse 21. He comes to Laban, he says, I worked for Rachel, give me my wife, I want to have sex. <laughs> now the Bible keeps it raw and real, but this is crass. Give me my wife so I can have sex. Is that biblical love? Is it biblical love? Give me my wife so I can lay my life down for her and protect her. I'll tell you what this is. This isn't love at best. It's self-love. This is idolatry. And see, here's the sin underneath the sin. It's this idea that if I could just get Rachel, that everything all of a sudden is going to be okay, that my life's going to be okay, that my life will matter, that I will matter, that I will be worth something, that my life will now be worth something. Rachel, Rachel is going to heal the ache in my heart and fill this gaping hole. Now, in the New Testament, we've talked about this word before. There's a word for this, and it's the Greek word epithumia. And this, in the New Testament, becomes a catch-all word to describe what's really wrong with our hearts. It's the sin beneath the sin. And epithumia is found all over the New Testament. And oftentimes, we translate it evil desire. But that's not a good translation. Because epithumia does not mean evil desire. It means over-desire, epi-desire. It's those over-the-top desires or obsessions, those inordinate desires where I just have to have that thing. I have to have that person. I have to get that job or my life is over. And so, see, epithemia is not necessarily a desire for something evil, but rather it's an inordinate desire for something good oftentimes that leads to evil. See, this is the way sin works on us. It's not that we want bad things, but that we want things too badly. And the Old Testament's word for this is idolatry. Because what idolatry is, is it's taking anything or anyone and making that thing or person into an ultimate thing. It's having my whole life distorted by a life lie where I falsely believe that something besides God can give me joy and satisfaction that only God can give. That's idolatry. And John Calvin said it best. He said our hearts are little idol factories. That's what our hearts do. They just, they make Rachel's out of anything and everything. Anything that seduces our hearts fills the void heals the ache, becomes a sense of our worth and our significance and our satisfaction, that is an idol. And Jacob's emptiness and his father wound make him incredibly vulnerable to idolatry. And let's just be honest right now. Jacob is, in many ways, our world today. The ache in people's heart. 
the emptiness, the, the, the sense of meaninglessness. And, and, and let's face it too, sex has become one of the most powerful idols today. This along with finding that one true love. I mean, how many ladies, young and old, will exchange sex for the hope of just finding that one true love? Or how many men are really good at faking at being that one true love in order to get sex? See, this is only the human attempt to heal the ache, to fill the void, to bring meaning to a meaningless life. And then you have all those different idols, the the idol of money, the idol of possessions, the idol of sports, the idol of, of winning, of getting, of accumulating You have the idol of appearances and and body shape and health. I'm going to tell you right now, you know the most dangerous idols? The good stuff. Marriage. Family. Ministry. I mean, these things can so quickly turn into some of the biggest idols around. I mean, look at Leah. She makes such an idol out of her husband's affection and and having a family. If only my husband would love me, or if I could just have kids, now I'll be okay. Now I will be lovable. Now I will be worth something. And I'm going to tell you something. Building your life on your kids and getting your sense of worth through them or your spouse or through your ministry or by being a good person can be every bit as destructive as having an affair. Do you see that? The sin beneath the sin. The sin beneath the good stuff. Now, at some point in the game, our idolatry will come to a screeching halt. Think about Jacob at his wedding feast. How happy this guy must have been and now all of a sudden it's approaching that time to go into the love chamber and with his one true love, I finally got it. I finally found it. And then verse 25, but in the morning, behold, it was Leah. I love what Tim Keller has to say about this because he says, I don't care what you think your Rachel is. It will always, always be Leah in the morning. In fact, do you know the book of the Bible that finds itself right in the center? Right in the center of your Bibles, anyone? Take a guess. Ecclesiastes, right in the heart of your Bible. Because see, here's what Ecclesiastes does. Ecclesiastes, in this raw, authentic way, presents us with humanity's greatest problem. Under the sun, is there anything worth living for? Is there anything really meaningful? And Ecclesiastes answers this problem with, under the sun, no! There's nothing worth living for under the sun. Everything under the sun will always in the morning be Leah. 
That's why C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for something beyond this world, something beyond the sun. Do you know that? Because now we're getting into our hope. I mean, where do we place our desire? Where do we place our hope? Where do we place our meaning? Look at verse 35. Such a beautiful verse. Leah conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son this time, she said, she said, this time, I will praise the Lord. This time. Stake in the ground. See, she's, she's going from saying, now my husband will love me, now my husband to love me, to, mm, I will praise the Lord. Where are you today? Can you be like Leah who can say, no longer am I looking to my husband No longer am I looking to my children to get my sense of worth, that I'm okay. This time, I will praise the Lord. She just took her eyes off her husband, off her children. She took her hope and her desire out of that. And she placed it on God. And you know what? She got her life back. She got free. She no longer lived in the prison of, of, of having her life being determined by her father's manipulation or, or by Jacob's favoritism. And I'm going to tell you right now, the answer answer to all of our idolatry and the havoc it wreaks on our life, it's one thing. It's worship. It's worship. Shema Israel, Adonai Elohehu, Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Only God can fill that hole. Only God can assuage the ache. Only God can fulfill all your hopes, all your dreams, all your desires, and never let you down. Because Augustine said it, God has made us for himself. And our souls are restless until they rest in him. You know what's so awesome about this story? We looked at all the people of the story. Let's look at God for a moment. Who in this story does God set his affection on? Who is it that God notices it? 
Who is it that God is attracted to? Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw Leah. Now Leah was not loved. He opened her womb. When God saw the unloved one, when God saw the girl that nobody wanted, when God saw the unattracted one, when, when God saw the rejected one, when God saw the poor one and the weak one, he loved her. And even more than love her, who is Judah? Judah bears the seed. The lion of Judah. From Judah will come the king of all kings. God chooses Leah to be the mother of Jesus. Why? Because God loves the unwanted. He loves the weak. He loves the poor. He loves the least. He loves the unloved. And the Bible says he is father of the fatherless, and it says he is husband to the husbandless. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the bridegroom, and Jesus as the bridegroom is attracted to the Leah's. And now when you think about what the bridegroom came to do, that he came to live the life we were supposed to live. He came to die the death that you and I deserve to die so that when we trust him, though we might look like Leah, to Jesus we look like Rachel. And you might look like Leah today to yourself and you might think you look like Leah to everybody around you, but when you belong to him, You look like Rachel. Beautiful. And I'm telling you right now, if you don't have this burning in your heart, this is the power that breaks the chains of of idolatry in our life. It's not some three-step program. It's seeing our bridegroom and how he loves us and how he chooses us. I will praise him. So I don't know if there's anyone here this morning that feels like someone has ruined your life. I encourage you to look at Leah. And I challenge you to say, can your heart say this time, this time I will praise the Lord? And maybe there's someone here today who just feels ugly, unwanted, unloved. Do you understand that your bridegroom became all of that for you? So that you could have the one true love your heart was made? He has made us for himself. And our souls are restless until they rest in him. And our bridegroom gives us a meal, a wedding feast that we can participate in. And this morning, if you would like to participate and come and eat and partake of the feast. Let's pray.
And the girl that no one wanted. You, O oh Lord, turn that girl into a princess. And that's the gospel. And whether I was clear this morning or not, Lord, I pray that that reality would be seen. That the eyes of our heart could see the all-beautiful bridegroom who takes Leah's and makes them into Rachel's. May we believe that today, Lord. May we entrust our lives to that today. May we, like Leah, stop worshiping the things of this world. May we give them up and say this time, Yehudah, I will praise the Lord. Because you're so worth it, Jesus. Amen. Amen.